This program is about you and time. Time and the war at home, where the fighter wears overalls and the factory whistle blows reveille. The total war in which everyone is a soldier. This radio program, broadcast in early 1942, coincided with the start of a nationwide campaign that would ask each and every American to take part in a massive war production effort. Not all of us can go to the fighting front, but most of us can fight on the production front, here at home. Work is the first order of the day. We must keep on fighting the... From the United Auto Workers, Local 719, assure full cooperation of 5,000 members for victory. From the Peninsula Shipbuilders Association of Newport News, Virginia. This organization will do its utmost in stepping up production through this proposed committee. From the Goodrich Local 194, United Rubber Workers of America. Factories that had been producing pleasure cars started making tanks and jeeps. Plants that had been manufacturing lipstick cases began producing cartridge clips. And shipyards that had been building supply ships for Britain started producing battleships, aircraft carriers, and destroyers for American troops. America, fighting a global war, calls on its shipbuilders for vessels of every type and description. Flat-bottom tank carriers designed for shallow... The urgent demand for warships created a huge demand for labor. Men, women, minorities, and new immigrants were recruited from all over the country. Well, I was a recent immigrant from, from Austria, from Vienna, where I was. I was born. I had to leave because of the Jewish persecution. My parents didn't leave soon enough, and they died in concentration camps. But I barely got over. Joseph Fabry arrived in America about the time Henry Kaiser was hiring people to work in his huge shipyard in Richmond, California. And uh, when the war started, I wanted to get even with the Nazis. And when I heard that the Kaiser shipyard in Richmond hired people who did not have any skills or did not need to have any skills and did not need to speak the language very well and did not have to be citizens... So it was a perfectly wonderful opportunity. The Kaiser shipyards were soon full of people who had never even picked up a welding iron or a rivet gun. Salesmen, cab drivers, waitresses, housewives, people from all different backgrounds were working together for the first time. In Vienna, Joseph Fabry had been a lawyer and a writer. At Kaiser, he was to be a shipfitter. When I first came to the shipyard, I didn't know what to do, and nobody seemed to know what to do. They, always, they were standing around, including the, the leader man and the foreman, and they were all huddled around, puzzled about a blueprint. And they cursed and they swore. And the more I listened to them, the more I seemed to know what they were swearing about, because I knew what the blueprint said. So eventually, I said very timidly, I think this piece goes on the other side of the plate. So everybody turned around me and said, can you read a blueprint? I said, yes, I learned it in high school. And then everybody turned to me and said, no, what does this mean? What does this mean? So for about one or two hours, I was the center of attention. And that was important for me to reestablish my self-esteem. 
which I had lost through the Nazis. Every day, American shipyards are answering the challenge of war, filling the Navy's orders for ships and more ships. Yes, and shattering all records in doing the job. I was in that fantastic experiment to build, a, I think, a, a 10,000-ton ship in four and a half days. And there was this great spirit of, of achievement, of comradeship, of purpose to, to beat that record. And it started to rain, and it started to be foggy, and nature didn't cooperate very well. But we did it in four and a half days. And when the ship was launched, that was probably the, one of the peak experiences of my life. At the appointed moment, 30,000 proud and weary shipbuilders watched Mrs. James F. Burns christen Robert E. Peary. When Hull 440 slid triumphantly down the waves, a cheer went up that echoed round the world, a tribute to the determined men and women who had accomplished the amazing feat of launching a 92% completed ship in four days, 15 hours, and 27 minutes, an all-time record. Before her bow had hit the water, another keel was lowered. For not a minute could be lost in maintaining Richmond's production rate. It was the most learning experience of my life. I think I learned more in the shipyard than I learned in the university in Vienna. How to live, how to live fully, how to live purposefully. Uh, I couldn't say I, I, it was a happy time, but it was a fulfilled time. from home. Each day, millions of them are sent to American servicemen fighting on distant battlefronts. Because of a war Although the industries that built the ships and planes and tanks get most of the recognition, the United States Postal Service was a vital part of the war effort. During World War II, letters from home were a top priority. The United States Navy knows that such information is vital to a fighting fleet. Nothing, therefore, except actual battle orders takes a higher priority than mail. It is as important as food or fuel or ammunition. For without news from home, men simply cannot fight. The United States Postal Service processed 150 billion wartime letters, five times more mail than during peacetime. The increase was due in large part to people like John and Edna Golan. During the war, the Golans exchanged more than 1,000 letters. New York, November 26, 1942. Hello, my darling. It's so good to be writing to you once again. Sometimes the lust to write to you fills me for days until I can quench it for an early ride. January 10th, 1943, somewhere in England. My own dearest darling, shortly after I wrote you yesterday, a torrent fell down on the entire group, and it was the first mail call we've had in more than 10 days. And my share was terrific, dearest, mainly because of your continuous devotion to me. The morale of this unit has been very high, and with last night's mail call, it zoomed out of bounds. Right down. Captain. Here we go. Bremen on Right here, right here. Right down. That's my wife. Without no mail. mail I don't think anybody would be sane in the service for more than three months at a time. John Golan. That's how important mail was to me. 
It helped me maintain my sanity. The mailman had a very brutalizing job. We would have uh, three deliveries a day in those years. During the war, Nathan Alpert worked as a letter carrier in the Bronx. We would start working at 6 o'clock in the morning, sorting the mail. By 7.15, we had to tie out your mail in time, sort your mail, run out and deliver your mail, get back at a certain schedule, no matter how much the weight was. At that one time, you can run out with 100 pounds on your back. It didn't matter. Most of your leather cars were all bent in half with hernias. We had mountains and mountains of mail just laying around to be distributed. And everybody had to work that much more to do it. For two years during the war, David Silverglide worked the graveyard shift at the General Post Office in Brooklyn. Everyone home at that time felt that it was necessary for a soldier to get some kind of a gift or an apple pie or a cheesecake. Chester Campbell handled parcels at the General Post Office in Manhattan. Well, I remember one case very, very well. A young lady used to come in the post office every day after she got off from work and write her sweetheart a letter in the lobby. So one day she came in, believe it or not, with a birthday cake she wanted to send overseas to her sweetheart. So we told her we didn't think it would get there intact. But we had a mail handler at the counter named Joe Gilday, who was an expert rapper. He told her, he says, I'll take a chance, I'll wrap it for you. And believe it or not, the cake got there in one piece. So we all told her, when her boyfriend come back from overseas, please bring him in the lobby. We wanted to see him. He came back, she brought him in the lobby, and I understand they got married and lived happy, I hope, ever after. Also, the sad part, a lot of boys got killed in action. We'd get these Purple Heart boxes. They would get medals for that. The parents would be in the registered box, a small little box, about four by six or something like that. I would have to deliver that. Nobody else would bring it to them. And it was heart rendering to have to go and ring a bell and say, this is for your son. This is Mary. You likely know her. She works down at the mill. She is a spinner, a skillful spinner. Her nimble fingers can piece up quicker than the eye can see, and she's plenty smart. For hundreds of thousands of women, World War II meant going to work outside the home for the first time. Women were hired to fill jobs vacated by men now overseas or for new jobs in defense plants. Women had been working alongside men in textile mills in the 1930s, but during the war, the vast majority of the mill workers were women. Helen Boyajian, Narcissa Hodges, and Celia Thing worked in the textile mills of Lowell, Massachusetts. It was a woman's world back then. And I say that because it was so obvious that the men were gone, our brothers, and we missed them, but uh, we put our best effort into what we were doing. And I think it shows in the attitude that the girls had. It was just one big, big job. It just had to be done. I mean, I had a brother over there and a, 
I had my future husband was over there, and uh, every day you went to work hoping that when you got home there wasn't any bad news waiting for you. The Ouija board, remember the Ouija boards they had years ago? There was, all our husbands were in the service, so the girls would go in the ladies' room, and we, we have a Ouija board. And one girl would sit there, and the, and the other would sit there, and they'll say, um, is my husband cheating on me? <laughs> and the Ouija, the thing would go, oh, yes. <laughs> we had more fun with that Ouija board. They were a happy group, really. They were, they were very proud to be working and, uh, and giving their time. We had our sad moments, but most of the women were so upbeat. It made it a joy to work and to help the war effort. The government and industry worked hard to reinforce this positive attitude. Patriotic posters were plastered all over the workplace, and just about every industry produced films like this one, which admonished workers to stay on the job. Why, hello, Mary. Not going to work this morning, are you? It's such a lovely day. Too nice to work. There's so many things you can do, eh, Mary? That sale at the Globe department store. Let's take the day off and go shopping. They'll never miss you, Mary. But Mary knows they will miss her. It is vital that she and all the other Marys stick to the job and see it through. Today, cotton textiles are a vital war material. Here, Textile mills operated around here, the clock during the war, churning out uniforms, blankets, tents, and cotton bags for supplies. At the Lowell Mills, Narcissa Hodges and Helen Boyajan had the elite job of making parachutes. The best help that they could find was put on weaving nylon for parachutes. The best. It was the most beautiful nylon you could think of. A sea of white. Everything was white and the parachutes were billowing up in, in different areas. And of course, everything was so, so clean, and the lights were strong. It was like skiing on a sunny day. If you tried to break a thread, nylon thread, that you were making a parachute with, it would cut your finger. You had to use scissors. That's how strong it was. It had to be. Had to be, because you knew that somebody's life was depending on that. To speed the advances of Eisenhower's great army groups under Montgomery, Bradley, and Devers, 1,500 troop-carrying planes are off. From both sides of their big transports, American paratroops spill out. We did think about who would be using them and how careful we'd have to be. And we got so we would write them notes. And notes were included in, in packaging the shoots. We let them know that we were thinking of them along with working for them. We let them know that uh, on the home front, things were pretty much the same as they were when they left and that their family and friends were waiting for them.
According to the schedule of the production drive, another plane should have been finished in the eight minutes since this program began. Midway through the war, employees at the Boeing Airplane Company began work on a project that would play a decisive role in ending the Second World War. At first, the workers weren't told what the project was. They knew they were assembling a gigantic plane. Just what kind of plane, they weren't sure. But then the day came, inevitably, when the pieces of their jigsaw began to fit together. The day when the mountains of material and the millions of man-hours all combined to confirm the assembly line rumor, the washroom gossip, and their honest-to-God American curiosity. They were building the mightiest aircraft in history. They were building the Boeing-designed B-29 Super Fortress. The Army wanted a plane that could fly far enough and high enough to take the air war directly to Japan. One of the B-29 plants was in Wichita, Kansas. Located in the middle of the country, Wichita was far from the reach of enemy bombers, and it provided just the kind of workforce Boeing needed. Boeing was looking for people that was used to hard work, and farm boys was used to working from before sunup until after sundown. So they were experienced with long hours. C.C. Briscoe was a farmer before he went to work for Boeing. So was Lawrence Eubanks. And I think one of the reasons that the farmers, the farm boys, I'm going to say this, and the farm women, I think one of the reasons why they were outstanding is because they had experience doing things for themselves. They, if they had a piece of machinery that broke down at home on the farm, they couldn't run to town and get it fixed. They had to fix it, and so they used their own ingenuity. The Army and Boeing put tremendous pressure on the Wichita workers. Standard was a 10-hour day, seven-day week, with only two weekends off a month. In June of 1943, the first production B-29 rolled off the assembly line, ready for test flying. Aubrey Hastings, Jim Duncan, and C.C. Briscoe witnessed the first flight. It's a beautiful morning, that's perfect. And hopes are all high, you know. Here's, here's the first airplane. And it taxied down the runway, and it took off, and it's just a beautiful sight. And I had such a thrill then that I will never forget it. Uh, I think I remember I said, uh, Lord, let it fly. And it did. The proudest time that I had was watching that airplane make that circle around over the plant because I knew how much of my sweat and blood I'd put into that airplane. Within the plant, work proceeds, but the workers cock their ears for a sound that regularly drowns the clatter of their tools. It is more than a sound, it is a song. This is the song they hear. In the spring of 1944, the first 150 B-29s were rushed to completion and delivered to the Army. April 24th became a day for us in the 20th Bomber Command to remember. Here was our superport. It had hopped the Atlantic, Africa, and India. It flew from Kansas to China in a week. It didn't seem possible, but only a year and a half after the first experimental B-29 was flown, 
a fleet of American aerial dreadnoughts were arriving in China. Next stop, Japan. Over the next several months, B-29s carried out raid after raid against Japan, firebombing more than 60 Japanese cities. By the end of July 1945, only four large cities had been spared. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were among them, but not for long. We are delaying the start of our scheduled program to bring you the latest direct report on the atomic bomb attack on Japan. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. The Japanese have seen what our atomic bomb can do. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. Only a Japanese surrender will stop us. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations on land, on the sea, in the air, and to the four corners of the earth are united and are victorious. When the war was over with Japan, everybody was a sh shouting and a hollering and a jumping up and down and slapping each other on the back and hugging each other. We were just so thrilled, you know, that the thing was over with. We are gathered here to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. The Japanese surrender aboard the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945, brought change to much of America. With no orders for new ships, many workers at the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond lost their jobs. Workers at the Lowell textile mills stopped making parachutes and began making blouses and dress suits again. The mail flow returned to normal, and at the Boeing plant in Wichita, workers began what for many would be their most painful job, Jim Duncan, Ray Reynolds, and Lawrence Eubanks. When the order came down, no more B-29 airplanes are to be built. Destroy everything that isn't in final completion. And I stood on the balcony out there and almost had tears in my eyes, maybe I did, to see the aircraft being dismantled, wings cut off, bulldozers rolling over the flattened sections, cut up in pieces that would fit in a truck and hauled off to a dump. They would hook on big caterpillar tractors to the front end and the rear end of the fuselage and they would get a head start and start going in opposite directions. And it would open it up and all of the wiring and the tubing that we had put in so carefully began to just stream out in between the two sections and just fall down to the floor like weak spaghetti. And to see the destruction of all of that, it was just, uh, it was heartbreaking. But then you had to recognize too that uh, that's one of the casualties of war, you know, you just, there's a lot of casualties of war, and that's one of them. And I think this is about the only thing that we hung on to, that, hey, it's going to be all right because that's just the way war is. You don't need this stuff anymore. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always.
These proceedings are closed. General Douglas MacArthur, 50 years ago today. For National Public Radio, I'm Dan Collison.